Hello, everyone. I am so excited for today's episode. It's the first time that I got to actually interview another dermatologist and really have a discussion, which is what I've always wanted to do with the podcast is bring other people on so you guys can see all the different ways to practice dermatology. So my first interviewing episode is with Dr. Casey Blessing, one of my dear, dear friends. Dr. Blessing completed her bachelor's degree in biochemistry at Arizona State University and then graduated from Tufts Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine in 2011. She did her small animal internship at BCA West LA, a very busy private practice, and then did her residency with Animal Dermatology Clinic in San Diego and became a board-certified dermatologist in 2015. Dr. Blessing became very interested in derm when her own personal dog required a dermatologist, and you'll hear how she actually home cooked for her big dog for years due to his food allergies. She's an amazing mom of a little girl, a great wife, and one of my best friends. We had such a fun conversation about food allergies, and I truly, truly think you're going to love it. Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with Animal Dermatology Clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Okay, well... Thank you so much to one of my besties for being the first interviewee on the podcast. So today we're going to talk about food allergies, and I can't think of anybody much better than my friend, former resident mate, um, Dr. Casey Blessing, who practices at our animal dermatology clinics in San Diego because she is a food lover. She has a former um, owner of a food allergic dog. Um, she is a mom. She understands the craziness, but most importantly, we are here to talk about food allergies and we got some of your questions regarding food allergies. Um, so Casey, just to start, we'll start pretty simple. What are the main clinical signs when you're seeing a dog and they're coming in and they're allergic and let's do dogs first and then we'll move to cats. Um, what are the first few things you think of as far as main clinical signs in an allergic dog that you're seeing? Yeah, for an allergic dog for food allergies. So um, unfortunately, it can look very similar to environmental allergies, so as well as um, flea allergies. So um, it can be a little hard to distinguish between kind of those big three, flea versus food versus environmental. But um, in general, for a food allergic dog, you can see, you know, um, pruritus as well as you know, lesions secondary to paritis, kind of periocular to the pinna around the face, muzzle, um, you know, the flexor elbows, the paws, the ventrum. One of the kind of main distinguishing factors between food allergic dogs and environmental allergic dogs is that you'll, um, you can have the rump or the dorsal lumbar region affected. So that's kind of one of the main distinguishing factors that you can see as well. You know, flea allergy can also affect the dorsal lumbar region, but food and flea are the big components of the dorsal lumbar region as opposed to environmental allergies. So I think um, in general, you know, those three big allergies can look very similar, but the dorsal lumbar region is one of the things that I'll kind of point out to food allergy more so, as well as if there's any concurrent gastrointestinal signs. So, you know, as dermatologists, not all of us like to think about gastrointestinal signs, especially um, since it's more happening from the internal part of the dog. But uh, there is, I think it's important for us to get good gastrointestinal histories from owners to see, you know, how many bowel movements per day are they having? It's been shown that any, um, kind of non-seasonally pruritic dog that has more than 3.1 bowel movements per day is more likely to have a food allergy. So I'm always asking about bowel movements per day and then, you know, low or uh, fecal consistency score can be, um, an issue. So, you know, diarrhea, mucus, so I always, um, we have a GI history form that we have all of our new patients fill out so we can have that information before we start our consult. And I'd say for cats, um, clinical signs, you know, of course, there's kind of those big four components of pruritic cats. So you can have the miliary dermatitis, which we definitely think of more for flea, but you can see it with food allergy. And then your non-inflammatory alopecia, 
Um, of course, that eosinophilic granuloma complex we can see with food allergy as well as environmental and uh, flea. But um, I think the big component for food allergies in cats is there's kind of this uh, propensity for uh, the head and neck region. So there's been a few studies done and it ranges anywhere from like 60 to 80 percent of food allergic cats will have paritis and lesions to their face and neck. And a lot of that erosive crusting, we can even have um, cats with food allergies that present almost looking like pemphigus for how severe their face and neck are with those ulcerations and excoriations and things like that. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point to par- point out about cats. I feel like a lot of when I'm talking and lecturing to veterinarians, um, they don't know that if you really see a cat with allergies and their head and neck peritic, like to me, food allergy is until proven otherwise a, a problem for me until I rule it out. Like head and neck itchiness in cats, if they're on good ectoparasite control and we're not worried about notoedries, um, where I'm pretty much going to roll out food allergy. Is that how, what you kind of think? I would completely agree with you on that one. I do laugh when you mentioned the dogs that you <laughs> gave it a 0.1 bowel movement, yep. which I know it's your research. I actually saw a dog today where I mentioned your research because it was a dog who came in, had super itchy, actually had a history of breaking out with like facial swelling um, numerous times treated with injectable, you know, diphenhydramine and DexSP would get better, but something's not matching up. And the dogs also chronically had diarrhea. He was on an over-the-counter venison diet and not doing well. And then when I talked to the owners to dive a little deeper, I found out he would have like five bowel movements a day. And she said, he can't hold it. He, I have to let him out every two hours or he'll like poop in the house. And so I was like, oh, one of my really good friends did a project. But I said three. I didn't say 3.1. Well, the, 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 with that 3.1, it's basically anything like greater than three. So it's four or more. Yeah. So that we can, we can factor on that four or more number as opposed to the 3.1. <laughs> yeah. They're not, you're not chasing around seeing if they had a 0.1 bowel movement. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair enough. Um, yeah. I totally agree. I mean, Allergy, food allergy, what I tell owners is super tough because um, depending on who you talk to, sole food allergic dogs aren't as common, but I think it's pretty common for us to see a food sensitivity happening concurrently with another allergy. And if we don't work that up and get that part under control, then we might not completely be getting their allergies under control. Yeah, And that's the really hard part. Yeah. And and you got Um, got up a point. I think in in general – um, if you were kind of kind of look across the board, environmental allergies are common, absolutely much more common than food allergies. But I think depending on who you talk to, what study you read, I am a big believer that food allergies are more prominent than we think. We just don't always dive into it or kind of address it. But I, uh, the latest kind of research that's come out, uh, it, depending again on which study you read, it's like Anywhere from 80 to 62% of allergic dogs will have a food allergy. That's obviously a huge, ridiculous range. And so a more recent one was saying that about 30% of dogs with environmental allergies will have food allergies. So I think it's more common for, it's more common for a food allergic dog to also have environmental allergies than for an environmentally allergic dog to have food allergies. So, yeah, I think, I think, so definitely food is kind of less common, but I think the more and more people start to look for it, the more and more they'll see it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. So talking about diets, because the big question that I always get asked, and I'm sure you do too, when you lecture and you consult with vets is there's a ton of diets out there. What diets are you leaning to? And obviously there's lots of different diets and we're all going to have different opinions, even between dermatologists, between nutritionists, between internists. Um, But what do you tend to gravitate to if you're ideally working up a food allergic dog or cat? Yeah. So um, agreed. I mean, you could ask every dermatologist and they probably have something different, but I can at least tell you what I typically do. So for a dog, I will use, um, kind of my go-to hydrolyzed diet is the Prina HA vegetarian. I will not use the chicken one. Um, so the Prina HA vegetarian, and then if they are insistent on having a canned food, I'll use the Royal Canin HP. 
Um, so for hydrolyzed diet choices, that's what I use. I rarely will use a limited ingredient diet in a dog. I, so that's, um, very rare, especially since the Royal Canin HP dry is approved for growing puppies. I'm either mm-hmm. using the pre HA vegetarian or the Royal Canin HP puppy, or excuse me, the Royal Canin HP, um, dry and canned, uh, Prina HA vegetarian used to be approved for growing puppies. And so they, there's been new changes of what the EPA DHA requirements are. So unfortunately it's lost its labeling for growing, but you can supplement with algae EPA and DHA to actually have it still meet the requirements. But so I'll typically use Royal Canin HP or the Prina HA vegetarian, um, and in a dog. And then if they won't tolerate those because a lot of dogs with hydrolyzed diets, either one, hate the way they taste, or two, they can actually get um, some loose stools because of the osmotic pull of it. Some dogs even get really, really hard stools. Um, I'm usually then leaning towards home cooked, but I wouldn't home cook in a puppy. I would only home cook in an adult dog. Um, so again, I don't tend to use any of the limited ingredient diets. The For cats... Um, I do tend to use more of the rabbit and pea diets or rabbit-based food. Just um, Unfortunately, a lot of the hydrolyzed diets out there still have some form of chicken in it, whether it be, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's hydrolyzed chicken, and I've had my most sensitive um, food allergic patients still react to hydrolyzed chicken. So for cats, it's usually rabbit or pea. And then I've been starting to use a lot more of the rain diets in cats, um, but uh, prior to that, it was mostly the rabbit and pea from Royal Canaan. Sure. I, I tend to try, you know, uh, especially with if there's a history of having any sort of poultry, I tend to try to avoid having any diet, even if it's hydrolyzed with chicken in it, just because I've seen, you know, those super sensitive dogs and cats still react to the chicken fat or the chicken, you know, liver that's in some of those other diets. Sure. Um, so yeah, I, it's interesting cause there are so many opinions about it, including between us. Um, recently I was talking to a dermatologist and he was almost exclusively novel protein. It just is where he felt comfortable. I'm with you. I'm definitely preferentially a hydrolyzed user. I, I do like Altamino. I use it if owners financially are okay with it and depending on their diet history and whether or not they need something like hand or treat since it's just dry. Um, I tend to use Altamino, but I use also HP. Like a, a dog I had today was younger and they just needed treats. Like they're, they were not going to not do anything without treats. Like it just wasn't going to happen. And that's where I do become a little bit more open to novel protein. If um, I've had owners and maybe it's just working in Portland, Oregon, like, you know, different clientele, but I've had people like I'll go through hydrolysis and it just freaks them out and they're, they're not going to do it. They don't like the idea of soy. They don't like the idea of, um, chicken feather, like they're just not going to do it. And so if I can successfully get them to do something like, you know, rabbit diet and they've never been on rabbit or, um, you know, the crocodile diet from rain or, or whatever, or I guess it's technically alligator, but they call it crocodile um, crocodilia, then I'm open to it. Um, but they kind of know my preferential like list I go down for me, if I can at least get them to do something, if they're not going to home cook and they will do something like a novel protein, then I'm more open to it. Um, but yeah, I think that's the nice thing is that we're all different. I think the big thing, the big thing to recognize is at least for me, There's not an over-the-counter diet that's going to replace a diet trial unless by over-the-counter you mean home-cooked, like legitimately not, you know, home-cooking. And you still have to be careful with home-cooking. Like people are making chicken in a pan and then putting, you know, their pork in it or whatever right after. Like there's still some cautionary steps you have to take with that. Do you think there's anything like an over-the-counter diet that can truly be a diet trial food? No, I don't. And I will, you brought up like a few, like a few other things. So at least in San Diego, we have so many of those boutique diets out that there really isn't novel proteins. And a lot of the patients that I'm seeing, they've been exposed to just about everything. And so, um, if I'm only going to get an owner to like to do it once, I want to make sure it's like, I can truly say that they've gone through a good elimination diet. And then, um, you know, 
most of the limited ingredient diets are with potato and dogs and then, you know, peas with cats. Um, and I, I've yet to have a dog come to me that hasn't had potato before. And I've actually had dogs that are potato allergic. And so that's another reason why I tend not to do it. And then there are, you know, I hate to bring it up because it's it kind of be a, lo- a loaded topic, but there's all that cross reactivity. And, you know, yeah. and uh, they've, it's, it's actually quite frightening how many things that they've found to like cross react. And so chicken and fish can cross react as well as the crocodile. And so, and that's been shown even in humans and like young boys, but then, you know, it's, there's like the cattle with lamb with venison, then cow and pork and chicken and fish, and then beef and lamb and dairy. And then there's even talk that corn and rice can cross react and then corn and potato. And so it's just a little, and then, you know, all the poultry can cross react. So for me, they're one, an over the counter to the diet, like usually just, there's been studies showing that, although not that the foods are contaminated with something bad, but they're contaminated with other DNA protein sources. Granted, granted, we don't really know how much protein sources have to be in there in order to cause a flare up. Um, But that's, yeah, I just don't think, at least in my world that, you know, that there is an over the counter diet that can work. The one thing I did want to comment on about the Royal Canin HP, I've been using a lot more of their one in cats, like their multifunction kind of urinary and um, diet, which I found is great. There's also a renal one. So for those cats yeah. that have renal insufficiency, being able to still do a diet that meets both their urinary or renal issues with the hydrolyzed, I think is great. But I've also been really diving into the Royal Canin um, HP plus satiety for mm-hmm. overweight dogs and cats. Now, unfortunately, I think the dog one's on back order right now. And so I, I don't know when it's coming back, but I have um, started to use that a lot too, because you can not only do the diet trial, but also help those incredibly overweight patients at the same time. Yeah. I'm actually glad you brought that up because a lot of people don't know those dyes exist. Yeah. And I think especially in the cats, when we're seeing yeah. those older cats who are worried about food allergy and they have renal disease or if they have a cat, we're worried about a food allergy and the other cat in the household Correct. has like renal disease yeah. and they, you know, it's harder in a lot of cats to get them to feed separately. They'll kind of graze all day, you know, just depends on the cat. And it has that option that you can provide that work up, but also recognize the other diseases that are going on in the household. Yeah. Um, and I totally agree with you about over the counter. Um, and the, do you find that you get a lot of pushback? So like if you have an owner that comes in and they're hesitant to prescription diets, obviously you could push home cooked and that's what you could do, but do you, how do you kind of explain it to them where you do get them on board if they seem a little hesitant? Yeah, I would say that, um, I don't really find that all that much because, um, if I'm, and it might be just cause I, um, love food allergies and how, and I'll take, I try to take as much time as I can to kind of explain it, but I don't really like an owner will ask, like, can I just use like an over the counter diet? And then I'm like, unfortunately, no, because we don't, there, there's been studies and, you know, showing that a lot of the over the counter diets, as well as prescription based limited ingredient diets still contain other protein sources in it. So I usually will say, I only want you to have to do this once. And I want us to know that like you we're, we're, we're doing it with a diet that will hopefully work. And so, and then I, and also this could just be because I'm in San Diego as well, or Southern California is that if people don't like the sound of hydrolyzed soy and corn or hydrolyzed soy and rice and chicken fat, which is in the Royal Canaan HP, which I make sure to tell them what the ingredients are, because I think if you, they go home and research it and find out that you didn't, they'll, you'll get a call and people will be really upset about it. So if there's a big pushback on that, I usually, and then, then I say, let's home cook. But again, I don't home, sorry, not again, but I don't home cook in cats. That's one thing I won't do, but I will home cook in dogs. Yeah. I haven't home cooked in cats. If I had to there, even for the trial, there's no doubt a nutritionist would have to be involved. A hundred percent agree with you. You like contact the nutritionist. I can maybe mention some protein sources, but they are handling it for you. Whereas in a dog, like for that two month period, I don't mind if they're not growing in a puppy and everything. Um, I will say that some people have asked because Balance, it's a great website to use. Um, the website itself can be a little challenging for um, owners. It's not the most user friendly, but it has a, it's. I love the the concept of it. But I've had now I think three dogs flare with their vitamins, 
So I will have them avoid using the vitamins and the oils during those eight weeks. And then if the, a lot of times, I feel like some owners, once they start home cooking, like want to keep doing it. And so then one of their first challenges back is the balance it vitamins. And then I'll do the oils because I, again, I think it's been like, I have like an N of three now where the dogs actually flared with the vitamins. Oh, interesting. And I have no idea what's in it that caused causes that, right? So sure, yeah, balance it. It definitely can be a good website, and um, I haven't had them flare to adding the oils and stuff. But again, I probably am not doing like as much home cooked as you are because I am. I will let them do like the novel protein, and I always think when we talk about um, like trying to get owners on our side. I, I totally agree with you about transparency on the ingredients. I make a list. We go over exactly what the main sources are so that when they leave that that appointment, there's no if I put them on Altamino, there's no shock when they go back and it's like chicken feather. You know, it's just like, this is what we do. This is where we're at. Hydrolyzed soy, hydrolyzed chicken feather. I mean, whatever it's going to be so that they're finding out for me and not Google or reading the back of the bag and then getting an angry phone call the next day. Right. Um, I also think just like the people are so familiar with food sensitivities and allergies, whether, you know, it's in people like gluten or peanut or whatever. So for me, thinking about prescription diet as the extra steps to get certain labelings where they can think about like a person. So like, it's probably not the most direct example, but like a peanut allergy kid, how they can't even not just eat a peanut, but it's like peanut was made in this facility. It's just that extra step to make sure they're doing that ELISA testing and knowing that there's not going to be contamination in those vats, which over the counter diets, like that's often where the price difference is coming. And people always wonder, well, why is it more expensive? And it's that extra testing either to hydrolyze or to assure that we don't have those other protein carbohydrate sources within those vats. And I think also giving for me, what I've found maybe one of the things that has helped me the most convinced, cause I don't have too many people fight me on diet trials anymore. I think if you really take the time and go through it with them, you'll actually get most people on your side but I just say like, give me the eight weeks, like just exactly get rid of your, in your mind that I'm making you buy this expensive diet for this huge dog. And all you can think about is for the next eight to 10 years, like I am going to go broke on this food. It's like, let's just see if it matters. And then in eight weeks, if we know it matters, like if we can clear them up and then we challenge them and they flare and we know it matters, like we'll figure out what we need to do at that point. Right. But like you said, I want to, it's a test. Like it's, I just want to know if it even matters. And then if we get through that with my really good diet trial and it doesn't great, like let's move on. Let's not spend a year trying to scoot around it. And then we didn't really answer the question in the the first place. Yeah. And I think that, oh yeah, go ahead. I was going to, um, in some instances, depending on where you live, like I know there's some dermatologists that would like would never, would not, I shouldn't say never, but would prefer not to do a diet trial during spring or summer. So depending on what your climate is or when, because again, a handful of these patients will also be environmentally allergic. And so choosing when to do your diet trial can also make a difference. Um, yep. You know, in San Diego where it's like, we don't really have seasons. It's not all that, I don't think it matters all that much, but um, you're also trying to a lot of times uh, manage the concurrent environmental allergies at the same time. So there can be that component of when to do it. And then I will also a lot, I will, I think it's, uh, can be very hard for owners to try to do a diet trial around like the holidays because of parties and like hosting and then, um, you know, other factors that can really go in now having had a child, there's no way I could have a dog on a diet trial with a young child. And so I've had some owners learn to take their, like we, during those eight weeks, they do not allow the dog in the kitchen. And then after the kid is, you know, done eating, they'll vacuum and clean, but that's a lot of work. And so you have to have like a super dedicated owner. And I've sometimes done when there's multiple young kids in the house, it's like, this just isn't the right time to do it. And so you kind of have to pick, you know, multi-cat households, multi-dog households. Like if there's, um, you know, uh, people that can't get over or can't uh, not give the dog the treat. Sometimes it's just not an option at certain times for certain families. 
Yeah. I 100% agree. Having um, the two kids in the house now, like I even tell owners that we talk about food. I'll look at them and say, is this possible? Right. Like, is it something you can do right now? Because I've had some, especially I around the holidays where I've said, well, I don't know. I know Thanksgiving's coming. Like if, if you know, grandma and grandpa are going to come over and there's just no way they're not going to give their grand dog, like a little love, like no matter what you do, like let's just control things the best we can. And let's come back to this after the holidays. Yeah. It's like five or six weeks that you're postponing it. But I've also had some owners. I remember one owner I had, uh, it was like early December and I was like, well, it's the holidays, you know, we can do this, but if that's going to be too difficult. They're like, oh no, this dog doesn't get anything else. Like they were very strict in general. So I think I don't like to blanket it like, oh, I will never, I have met dermatologists who are like, I will never, ever, ever do a diet trial during the holidays. Yeah. And like, for me, everybody's so different. Yeah. It's all about the communication. Yeah. It's about communicating and asking. I mean, in giving owners the out, if it's so like for you to be able to relate to them and say, well, I couldn't do a diet trial right now with my one-year-old. Like I get it. Like it just makes them feel better because sometimes they feel guilty, I think. But to me, it's like, that's expensive food to buy if we're not going to be able to do it right now. So let's control things and then come back to it. Well, and I think also I I was going to say, like having had to home cook for my own dog for three years, I usually tell owners like having to home cook for my own dog for three years, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. So like I can kind of- On a big dog. Yeah, a 90 pound. I usually say 90 pound uh, dog that I had to home cook for three years. Like I was, and I literally will say, I I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. And so I can be like, but it's eight weeks. Like, let's just like, I'm not asking you to do it for three years. (laughs) Like let's hope not. But, uh, yeah, eight weeks I think is the important thing to kind of stress. Are there any particular advice tidbits you give to owners if they do have like young kids in the house or external factors, or is it everything you kind of just mentioned deciding if you feel like it's even possible at that point, um, or doing the vacuum cleaning. Yeah, I, I usually, like you said, I don't tend to have a lot of pushback of trying to get patients to be on diet trials. So yeah, I mean, things that I've like, you know, suggest, like talked about where, you know, keeping the dog out of the kitchen area, keeping the dog away from the kitchen table, like gating it off, making sure to vacuum if you can, or keeping the dog outside during like feeding time. But if you have small kids, like there can be food everywhere. So like in the couch and like, depending on how old the kids are, um, Also, I tell them to make sure that everybody in the house is on board with it, which includes like people coming over to visit, includes the FedEx and UPS people, includes the mailman that potentially might bring bring treats. Um, When I lecture about this, I tell the story of I had a um, lab who was environmentally allergic, food allergic, and we'd finally gotten the dog like fully controlled, allergy shots, diet. Um, was on Atopica as well. And all of a sudden the dog kept flaring. And for like two months, we could not figure out what was going on. And the owner came home and found their new neighbors giving the dog milk bone through their chain link fence. And so they had no idea that the new neighbors were giving their dog this food. So it's like, you literally have no idea where it can come from. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just making sure that everybody, you know, is on board. I know that um, another colleague of mine, had a dog that they actually, the owners were willing to muzzle it because the dog, it was a lab was willing to like would eat everything on a walk. So they muzzled it for those eight weeks to really prevent it from getting anything on walks as well. Oh, wow. I have almost the exact same story about the neighbor. Like when I was working in orange County, I had a dog that was like one of those dogs that comes in and not just like an allergy dog, but you're like no hair, like disaster lab emaciated and we die at trial and he would seem to do better, but we never could fully get to it. And then the owners were wondering why the dog kept hanging out in the back corner of the yard. (laughs) And then he would do okay for a little bit and then he'd flare. And we found out the exact same thing. Like their neighbors were very lovingly giving him like little table scraps and treats. And that's why he'd go to that corner of the yard. And as soon as they said, Hey, like he's food allergic, don't do that. Cause he gave him like chicken. Then he a hundred percent was one of like my few absolutely solely food allergic dogs and like gained all of his weight in his hair. So that's funny that you had that happen too. Yeah, And, and like, you don't, they don't know that it's happening. No. Some other like things that, you know, like 
people wouldn't think of like letting the dog lick out of the dishwasher or we've even, I've had like dogs that if you drop a piece of of meat that they're allergic to, they'll lick the floor and flare up. So it's like certain dogs can be really sensitive and we don't know every dog's threshold. And so, you know, kind of just pointing out the things like, Oh, Hey, I'll always ask them, how are you planning on giving the medications? I even had it actually just happen uh, two days ago. I was, rechecking a patient of mine who's atopic as well as I've suspect food allergic and the dog's been on it's we're now on Royal Canin HP plus satiety for four weeks and she was talking about giving her pills I'm like well how are you giving the pill she's like well I'm peanut butter and I'm like that Mm. negates the diet trial she goes no it doesn't and I was like yes it does so usually um when I'm sending home a diet with medications, I always ask how they're going to give it because that can be also a really hard thing. Cause most people might, they don't correlate that giving a pill with a certain something is actually negating the diet trial. So what I will talk to them about is that they can take the kibble and smash it with water and make like a little putty. If there's canned food, they can make a meatball. I will, especially with the pre-HA vegetarian, if they've never been exposed to almonds before, I'll allow them to use a little almond butter. Um, But if it's like a rescue dog and they haven't had the dog since a puppy, then I, like on a hydrolyzed, eliminate everything. Because if you don't really know the history of the um, diet, like everything that that dog's eaten, I would hate to be giving it something with further medication and have it negate the diet trial as well. Um, I've had dogs flare up with marshmallows. I know some people will use marshmallows to give pills. I, I've had dogs flare up with that. Um, I've had dogs Even like the kosher vegan ones? Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's still, wow, the, still cornstarch. Um, Got it. And, you know, peanut butter. I've had dogs flare, like my own personal, with broccoli and um, Brussels sprouts. I've now had a carrot allergic dog. And so like all the things. So for me, the big thing is like, they are not allowed to have anything they've ever had before during those eight weeks. So if we can find something that they've never, ever had before, I might consider it. Um, But again, I'm trying to think if there's any other like tricks or things that I can get, but I think it's mostly talking about how are you going to make this successful for the, for those eight weeks. I think communication is definitely the biggest thing and they don't bite you as much if you come in confident and are just willing to work with them, whatever that looks like. One of the craziest things I just thought about, and I don't know if you've had a dog like this. I had a case, um, last year, it was a German shepherd, food allergic and atopic. When we were doing the diet trial, I believe it was with Altamino, they, um, the dog flared because he ate the other dog's poop. Like he would eat the other dog's feces and then flare because we didn't have that dog on it because two German Shepherds expensive. expensive. And when we changed that dog's, both of them, they're like, okay, we're just going to put them both on the Altamino for the two months then and rule that out. The dog did awesome. Yeah, that's, so. I've actually, I've had a dog that ate rabbit. Every time the dog ate rabbit poop, it flared up, but it, like, oh. it, but it was atopic and not actually allergic to rabbit, but something in the stool of the rabbit, the dog flared up with. Um, yeah, it's it's bizarre some of the things that you can see. And cats that hunt, you also worry about like them. You know, you I usually try to keep tell them to keep them indoors and not have them hunt during it. Um, but yeah, I mean that's it, it's crazy how yeah that's it's that's it's that trick. Yeah, exactly for certain dogs for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For certain dogs. So, um, what do you think about, um, and I just had my client today ask me about this, but what's your opinion on any of the blood? And we're just talking about food allergy, not environmental, right? The blood allergy testing for food, the saliva allergy testing. I've recently seen like a group on allergy test. Um, what do you think as far as any of the diagnostic tests besides a food trial for food allergy? Yeah, I think that this like is a loaded question and it's so hard, but unfortunately I at this point the research backs up that the only way to truly, you know, diagnose a food allergy is through a diet trial. The saliva and blood allergy testing are just not accurate and there's, you know, studies out there showing um which I know a lot of people talk about this one about um there was a certain test that was saliva and hair and so uh one of the dermatologists sent 
in samples of normal dogs, allergic dogs, as well as stuffed animal hair and water. And the samples with stuffed animal hair and water or stuffed animal fur, I should say, had positives. And so it's, I think, and you know, we were, you and I've had this conversation before too, is that it's just unfortunate that the um, kind of industry itself should just stop offering blood allergy testing for food as well as saliva allergy testing. And all it takes hopefully is one company to kind of step up and be like, Hey, this isn't accurate. Like let's stop doing it because it's really unfortunate that people are paying money for something that they think is accurate. And then also we then have to come in and be like, Hey, I'm really sorry. It's not, you know, patch testing is something that um, can be done, but it's, I think, done more in the university setting. It's not really super clinical where you can patch test. You put what, um, like you kind of grind up the food particle and do kind of a patch test for up to like 48 hours. But that in theory just helps you pick which food you should do the elimination diet with. So um, I don't do any blood or saliva um, food allergy testing. I hope that one day there is some way we can do that and that it's accurate and it works, but it's um, at least in my mind that as of right now, it's just not accurate. Yeah. It's not really a loaded question for me. It's a pretty easy question for me to say a resounding don't do it. Right. There's not many things like Durham is a very interesting specialty where we all treat things differently. We have different philosophies. We have different ways of doing things, even aller, you know, environmental allergy testing, you can find people to argue which way's better, you know, either serum or intradermal or prick. I mean, now that's coming out. So, but I haven't met a dermatologist yet that's like, yes, go ahead and do the blood allergy test. And my client today, when we were talking about it, it's like everyone's mentioned doing it from like my general practitioners, but why are they like even saying that if it's not accurate? And I'm like, you know, it's just, there's good marketing. Um, it's easy to pull a blood sample. But the problem with that is owners come in with a piece of paper and they live and breathe by it. Right. Even if we say, unfortunately, like it's just not validated that we can't put much trust into it. They still have a hard time not paying attention to that piece of paper right. because it's the result on a piece of paper. And so that's like the hard thing. I've heard some vets say, well, it's just a blood test and they wanted me to do it. It's like, yes, but even if you explain it's not accurate, they just stare at it and it's a result that they have received and they want to believe it. I am the first one to run that blood test when it's validated. Like I am, <laughs> would be so happy not right. to have to make my clients do eight week food trials and not know whether or not it would help. But I think it's pretty, I think we can say very confidently that at this point, that's not the case. Yeah. And I don't think that, I don't think I've not met a dermatologist that believes it, but I do think they, there are unfortunately veterinarians out there that think that it's accurate or that it's willing or, you know, that it's okay to be done. And so, and unfortunately as dermatologists, we, you know, have to be the ones to be like, Hey, actually it was not accurate and don't go off of it. What I tend to do is when an owner will say, Oh, well, my dog's chicken allergic or pork allergic or whatever. I'm like, uh, and I'm, and I'll always ask, have you actually given that food and your dog has flared up? And they'll be like, well, no, it was just off of a saliva test or a blood test. And so I I don't really, I then try to explain to them, you know, how we really would know is that you would give your dog that food and the dog would flare up. And then, you know, for sure that it's actually, you know, truly allergic to that food. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's, it's something that I really, it's not, whenever you see a test that's available at a lab you trust, I don't think it's the fall. I mean, I would usually believe you can run a, if it's there, there's an option that you can click the box. Like it should be legitimate. Right. So that's like the really hard thing is I understand why veterinarians would run it because it's there, it's a test and there's environmental serum allergy testing that we, a lot of dermatologists do trust. And right. then there's an option for food. It's an easy way to say, well, let's just find out. So I agree with you. Hopefully there'll be a, we can educate more and really just hopefully get some companies to take it away. Um, because at this point it's just nothing that we can really put trust in. And it's, and that's pretty resounding from every dermatologist. I know I'm sure there could be some out there, but everyone I know doesn't run it. Right. So another big question that we got as we start kind of wrapping up, um, our fun conversation about food, and I've actually learned quite a bit is a a big thing that we get asked is preventative. So 
heartworm, flea, tick. So while you're doing the diet trial, how do you handle that? Yeah. So again, this I think can also be uh, doctor dependent, but I can at least tell you for me, um, I don't worry about them. So because especially like with Brevecto that's given every three months, you might not even be giving it um, during the diet trial. But with like Comfortis, NextGuard, Cordelio, some Paracuts monthly. And so what I usually tell my owners is that they for sure will get it once during that eight-week diet trial, potentially twice. And so what I ask them to do is when they give it, watch to see if there's a flare-up after giving it. There was some, I forget when it was, but there's some study that looked at, I believe it was Interceptor and Beagles. And there were... um dogs that flared with the interceptor tablet, I believe all the way up to day seven, but it was most of them by day three or five had flared up. But, um, I, I just tell them, give it. And if you see a flare up, let me know. Cause if you do that, even more points that we have a food allergy and we're on the right course. So the one thing that I do think is like helpful, cause it, it's really hard to kind of like look up all of the ingredients of everything. So I've kind of made like a little cheat sheet for myself, but Brevecto has hydrolyzed pork. Comfortis is pork and hydrolyzed soy. Cordelio is pork and hydrolyzed soy. Nextgard is soy, corn, and lactose. And then Simperica is pork, lactose, and hydrolyzed soy and some wheat germ. But I only use that if the dog actually flares with it, because if it flares with it, with it, then you know, kind of what direction to head down. Yeah. Do you try to have them time it at all? Like just give it when it's due. It doesn't yep. matter. Yeah. For me and just give it when it's due. Yeah. And I think I could totally understand what you're saying. That's where I'm a little bit different. I, um, I do. So I actually rely a lot on Brevecto. So I will, depending on what they're on and as long as there's no issue with it, then I'll have them give a Brevecto towards the beginning of the diet trial. Um, we're not in a set, a super heavy heartworm area where I'm at, but we are seeing an occasional case. So if they are in heartworm prevention, then I usually have, uh, refer them back to their primary vet, or I talk to the primary vet about options like either revolution or like pro heart. If they do want them on heartworm prevention, um, I've had some where they're not necessarily willing to change what they're doing. And then I'll take the philosophy that you have of, okay, well, let's just look at the timing. Let's see where it all falls. Um, but I tend to lean a little bit more towards using Brevecto, but I've heard it all over the board between dermatologists. I've heard a lot where they don't change it. I've heard some where they're completely strict or even take it away if they're in areas where it's not a problem. Well, and I think if they're truly being strict and that's the one thing that they get once or twice during the diet trial and it's not weekly, I mean, it's monthly. So, you know, I think if they're given something up to weekly, that's still enough to make them flare with it. But once a month to me, like, I don't worry, I don't really, really worry about it. Sure. I think that's fair. And I've seen it. Well, and I'd say it's in San Diego, it's more important to be covering the flea part of it than, yeah. than worrying if they're going to flare for a few days from giving the Brevecto or the next guard or whatever. Yeah, that's fair. I definitely do not just stop it. Like yeah. at least we're, we're at an Oregon as well. We don't really freeze. And even now like March, but even January, February, I've seen plenty of fleas on dogs or flea allergic dogs or flea allergic kitties. Um, so we definitely like, if anything, I'm like, you have to be on it because if you're not on it because food and flea can look so similar, like that just makes it even worse for me to distinguish what's going on. Sure. Um, so the last question I have for you, um, is when do you decide? And I think it's a bit of a, I don't think you can blanket statement this. I don't think you can blanket statement like anything in dermatology because it's so case dependent and we all have our own opinions. Um, And what we say are just our opinions and we're going to handle things differently and it's still great for our patients. But when do you really decide you're working up a case and say it's like a, a dog or a cat that's always been kind of itchy. Maybe it was seasonal and now they're like four or five and it's all the time. Like what are the hard things where you're like, like do you food trial every single allergic dog coming in your door or what are the things that you're like, I have to food, like I have to do a diet trial on this dog. And then I'll tell you some of mine. Sure. So I think uh, for me, like food allergies are always non-seasonal, like non-seasonal all the time, unless the owner's changing the food consistently. Now that happens more in cats that they like 
you know, keep just switching food all the time. So that can be a little hard. But if the diet's been consistent and the dog or cat only flares in spring and summer, I'm not diet, diet trial, like doing a diet trial on that dog. Yeah. So it, it, for me, it has to be like non-seasonal. Um, as well as, um, if like the rumps affected and I feel like I've really honed in on my flea control. And then for me, a big one is the bowel movements per day and any sort of gastrointestinal signs. So, um, if I have a dog that comes in, that's non-seasonally pritic plus or minus might flare up in spring or summer, but there's a non-seasonal component and there's GI signs. I'm absolutely doing a diet trial. If there isn't GI signs, because not, I mean, there's a small percentage, I think it's in like the 30%, but I'm not 100% sure on that, of um, food allergic dogs that have gastrointestinal signs, which isn't very many. But so if those GI signs are there, those are what you want to hone in on. Because I actually, if there was like four or more bowel movements per day, if in two weeks those haven't changed on the diet, I'm changing the diet again. Because in theory, we think that the GI tract should respond quicker than the skin. And so if yeah. the GI tract isn't responding within two weeks of being on a diet, then I'll change the diet again. With that being said, I always actually will check fecals before starting diet trials if there's GI signs, because I want to make sure there isn't a concurrent gastrointestinal parasite. Um, and then for cats, um, yeah, the non-seasonal part of it, I, I think the non-seasonal part is a big one. If there's at least itch or paritis all year round. And then, um, the other thing that I would focus in on is um, age, so especially age in a dog. So dogs less than a year of age, plus or minus gastrointestinal signs, I worry way more about food than environmental allergies. I think kind of the newer data out there is that like close to 40% of food allergic dogs will show symptoms by a year of age. And then I think um, in cats, it's like much less, but I, any young dog or cat that's intensely paritic or even just has some paritis, I will do a diet trial on. The other part of that with dogs is that if you've had a dog that's been mildly paritic or seasonally paritic and starting at age seven, eight, nine or over has all of a sudden become non-seasonal, I would worry about um, a food allergy more so at that point. So I would be doing a diet trial then. Also, if there's just recurrent pyoderma, that's one of the, like food allergies is one of the allergies that I think does that more so than other allergies where they get recurrent pyodermas with only being paritic once the pyoderma is also already, you know, already present. And especially if they're breaking out with infections along their back, um, you know, we also think more endocrine with that, but if there's paritis and an older dog and all of that, um, you know, I, recurrent pyoderma with no other allergy-like symptoms, I, you know, besides checking thyroid and working up hormonal, I'll also do diet trials because those are usually older patients that I'll see. Yeah. I think those are great. I mean, I think you hit a lot of mine. Um, if I have a dog who's like seasonal and then it progresses to non-seasonal, um, I kind of give the owner the option. Because a lot of atopics can start out seasonal and then progress. Absolutely. So they're one where they're like, I don't know, I'm overwhelmed. Because some you just talk to and they're in on everything. They're like, I'll change the food. I'll do it all. Like, I want to figure it out now. And some you see their eyes start to glass right. over when you start going <laughs> over so much. Like, like we're going to put you on the Zapoquil. Plus, we're going to treat infection. Plus, we're going to allergy test you. And we also could change the food. And they're just like, I'm whoa, lost. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So, but some you just like, they want to start it all. And if it's just changing the food, no big deal. Um, so that one can vary for me. I kind of give owners the options. I do say that if we start our allergy workup for like Adipy, like we allergy test, we're starting immunotherapy and we start feel like we're not getting as well as we could, then we really, you know, I don't want you to be surprised when I'm going to come back and say, maybe we really should look at the food because I know you're atopic, but maybe there's like 20% of your itch is coming from food or, or whatever that looks like. Well, I don't if know I get you, a lot of, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't know if you have like also have owners come in and be like, I have tried every single diet out there. I've tried oh, yeah. 15 or 20 diets. And they're like, I am so done with food. I'll say, yeah. okay, we can work your dog up for environmental allergies. But just like you said, However, if we're not getting where we need to be in the next eight to 10, 12 months, I'm going to highly push a diet then. 
And so yeah. you, you kind of plant the seed that like, yes, we, we can put it on the back burner for now, but we may need to do this later. Yeah. Plant the seed and I put it in the home care because yep. that seed sometimes gets lost. And if it's like, go back to the initial exam, it's like, oh, remember we mentioned like we might need to do food. They're not, I, yeah, totally agree. Like not super surprised. And that's where Derm, I feel like communication with the owner, every, you can see 10, even the same signalment, same history dogs, and they're going to all probably walk out with 10 different plans because some are going to resist you on food. Some are going to be open to it. Someone's going to want to home cook. Someone's not, you know, someone can't give a pill at home. The other one could. So that's where they can all just be so dependent. And I think if you just listen and don't get stuck on, well, how I do an allergy workup is this, 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 and this. Like that's what has to happen. Like that's where I feel like a lot of people lose clients. And that's where I think Derm is really fun because though we only, you know, have so many tests and so many medications truly depending on what we're treating, they all can be put together in a way that we hope is successful for that client and that patient. Absolutely. that they're all different and that's like the real, and we practice differently and that's like the really cool thing about it. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts or things you want to bring up before we end our amazing food allergy discussion? No, as we could, I, you know, I could probably sit and talk for way longer about it because I know, um, I could just like trigger you somehow. And we would all of a sudden have a four hour podcast yeah. of mostly you ranting about food allergies. And then no one would want to listen to it because no one is too We could split it up. So, you know, you could keep going if you want, but we also get a little bit of our quiet mom time since all of our kids are sleeping right now. Yes, so exactly. you probably need a glass of wine yeah, exactly. and let your mind, you know, be free before cases tomorrow. <laughs> no, I think we touched on though. So, um, I do one. I, think, yeah, see, I yeah. knew it. So, <laughs> something. I was just, the last thing is cause I, I get um, a handful of uh, primary vets calling and asking about what's approved for growing and what's not. Yes. So we already touched on the dog about the, um, you know, Royal Canin HP dry. And then um, the Royal Canin duck and potato for dog and the Royal Canin venison and potato for dog is done, but I don't use those limited ingredient diets, but they are yeah. approved for growing. And I've talked to some nutritionists and I'm not going to make a claim on this because I am not a nutritionist, um, though we deal with food allergies. Most of the nutritionists that I've talked to, and there's only so many, you know, the, it, there's only so many boarded nutritionists that growth with cats, once they hit like six months or like a decent age, at least from what I've been told, like, yes, it's always best to try to put them on something labeled for growth. But if there's a reason they're not as concerned compared to obviously like a Great Dane puppy who's going to right, be growing. So exactly. we definitely want to be looking for those growth things. And we don't want to ignore that, but most of the ones I've talked to where we just really can't find a diet that's going to be, you know, labeled for growth that they right. can take, or they'll actually, it'll be palatable for them. Most of the ones I've talked to have been like, uh, I mean, it's probably not that big of a deal. So we could, we get like Stan Marks or someone who's actually boarded in that to let us know what they think so we don't get in trouble but that's that's what I've heard right well I just want to thank you thank my wife you. and my bestie which no one will understand um unless they're in our little little um derm nerd group um <laughs> for giving up one of your mom nights to talk about food allergy I knew if I could reel you in to talk about anything on a random Wednesday night after the babies went <laughs> Bed, food allergy would be it. Anything else, I might not have gotten you, but I knew I could- that might be true. <laughs> yeah, I knew I could give you food allergy and maybe the promise of a glass of wine the next time we see each other. Exactly. But thank you, thank you so much. Um, anyone, obviously, in San Diego, check out Dr. Blessing. She's amazing. Um, I will totally vouch for her. She's wonderful. And she, if you're sick of dealing with food allergy, she is your girl for sure um, to send those food allergic cases to. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ashley. And I'm really proud of you for everything that you're doing and doing all this. It's awesome. Thank you. I just want more cytologies and more allergic workups done in our patients. Yeah, yes. absolutely. That's all that it means to me. Well, you're doing a great job of getting that out there. 